This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, this morning, we have the job, the task of ending our study in 1 Corinthians. It's, it's taken a little while, roughly 33 messages. Originally, I figured it would be 40, so be thankful. Um, we started back in October. It's craziness, huh? And uh, who would have thought that you could spend that much time in one letter from Paul to a church and get so much out of it? Uh, it's kind of hard to put it in perspective. I found myself saying, okay, so what did we learn? <sighs> All right. And so I can think of a few things. A few of you have talked to me about what stands out. Uh, maybe, maybe you could at least pick out one of those lessons, or not a specific message, but a topic, an idea that really did touch you. I think many of us uh, felt like the Spirit of God showed up in a special way as we studied Him in relationship to His gifts. And so many of you mentioned that. Um, heard from a few of you about... Uh, our talk about resurrection, and there's been more than one who said, I want you to preach that at my sermon, at my funeral. <laughs> so, uh, so there's been a few, and I'm not sure what else touched you. We could go on and on. It's been so rich. So this morning, we really have three ideas to hit on before we go, and I'm going to move quickly. Uh, communion always takes an important part of our service together, and I really don't want to drag this out. I just want us to see how Paul ends this letter and ask ourselves if we could figure out why he ends it the way he does. So three ideas this morning, give, go, and grasp. The first thing we're going to look at is this command to give to the Lord's work. At the very tail end of the message, Paul is going to talk about giving. If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to start in verse 1. You can follow along. We'll project it. Or if you're using one of the blue hardcover Bibles, uh, there's a Bible there for you if you don't have your own copy. Paul writes this. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of instruction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, then they will accompany me. So he starts out with that, those two words, now about. And, and actually, several times in the letter we saw... Paul used that same phrase, now about this, now about that. And it's, it's clear that, that what he's doing when he, does, when he uses those words, he's actually responding to a specific question that they sent him. Remember, they, they had written him and, and also others had come from the church with uh, a report about how the church was doing. And so that's a cue that he's actually addressing something they asked about. So they had asked about this collection. So he says, now about... That's that formula that, that we've seen before. This collection about the Lord's people. Paul was on his third missionary journey, probably 52 AD to 57 AD. And this collection played a really important role in that third missionary journey. Everywhere Paul went, practically, he addressed this collection. or There was some instruction relating to this collection. It was a gathering of benevolent help for believers back in Jerusalem. Now, 
we don't know exactly why the believers in Jerusalem needed this help. There are several good possibilities, everything from famines to oppression because of the Roman state and the, the tension between Jews and these new Christians, um, all kinds of possibilities. We really don't know, and actually it doesn't matter. All we know is that the, the, the believers back in Jerusalem, hometown where the whole thing started, they needed help. I couldn't help but I keep thinking about Louisiana and other states with the flooding that they're experiencing and those kinds of things. It would be similar. You hear this, this report that they need help. And so he's gathering together support as he goes. And all of this is going to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons that you would do this. Uh, in Acts 15, when uh, Peter, James, and John were instructing Paul about when you go out among the Gentiles, here's the things that we really think you need to do. And one of them was, remember the poor. In fact, that's a huge part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Who did Jesus go to? The poor. Us. Of course, we're not poor by most of the world's standards. So he says, remember the poor. So certainly Paul was doing exactly what he was commanded to do. But I got to believe that you know, Gentile churches supporting the home church in Jerusalem had to make an impact too. Remember, there were still many Jewish believers who were trying to figure out where, how in the world does a Gentile get connected to God's blessing? This is so, so not right. It would be as offensive as somebody who used to be an ISIS fighter. And now, you know, I'm really liking all this Jesus talk. And we would be like, mm, I don't, I mean, we would hope it would be true. And yet, I'm not sure if we can really make a legitimate change like that. And so there was some misgiving, and, and certainly these gifts would go a long way to kind of confirming their identity as believers. So he says, do what, the Galatia, what I told the Galatian churches to do. That's kind of interesting. We won't get into the church history and the timing, but it's really good for us to remember that Paul was writing to many churches and that in many of these cases, they were all getting the same instruction. There are certain ways to do things. And this is what he's communicating. He says, I want you to do exactly the same thing as these other churches are doing. Now, they are collecting kind of a one-time benevolent gift. And yet, we're going to learn a lot about how God wants us to deal with money in the church on a regular basis through these passages. And then we're going to look at 2 Corinthians. So the first command is, give to the Lord's work. He goes on. So, on the first day of the week. Now, for Jews, Sabbath was the final day of the week, Saturday. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And it, it makes perfect sense that almost immediately, believers would begin worshiping and celebrating, gathering together on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. First of all, they probably didn't want to meet on Sabbath and compete directly with Sabbath. They, they weren't trying to be antagonistic. In fact, many of the Jewish believers probably went observed Sabbath, part of their family tradition, but still went and worshipped on Sunday. But in any case, this passage sort of kind of confirms this idea that very early believers were already meeting on Sunday. And so he says on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, he says that he wanted them to, to do something with their money. Now, can't help but notice, he says the first day of every week and at the beginning of the week. Yeah. 
I think it says something about how ideally we should give. And that is that we probably should be giving off the top from the beginning. So many of us are tempted to say, well, you know what? I'm going to get all the bills paid and do all the things that we want to do. And then if there's something left, God, by golly, I'll give you a little bit of it. And I think there's support, and this passage doesn't demand that. I just see it being supported that actually the goal should be to give to God first and then fill in the rest. And he says it's done every week. Now, perhaps you get paid every other week, and and I think it's perfectly uh, admissible to, to give each time you're paid. But I think the idea here is with some regularity. Not like, well, whenever, willy-nilly, however. The ideas that our giving should be sort of regular. In fact, it's coupled with our worship. It's why we treat the offering here the way we do. It's not just the commercial at the end of the show that helps pay for everything. You see, giving is an act of worship. And so as a part of their worship, he says, they ought to, on the first day of the week... Each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So setting it aside, literally sectioning it off. Uh, you know, you're, you're on the way to church and you're like, oh, by the way, uh, do you have a $20 bill or whatever? And like, okay, well, that, that's, that's nice. But I think what Paul's saying is, ideally, it's not like an afterthought. I mean, perhaps you do something specific to get ready on a Sunday morning. Uh, I remember in the old days, you know, used to set out our coat and tie or Sunday clothes, you know, you, you, and you, you, we used to set out the kids' clothes. Of course, with our kids, you had to set out several outfits because they would ruin the first two before they even got to church. But you do something to get ready. You might even go to bed early or you might get them up at a certain time or whatever. You do something to be ready. It's not like you're just sitting around the house and say, hey, you know what? It just dawned on me. They're having church today. Maybe I'll go. There's a certain intentionality. Now, we always are going to struggle with intentionality because we think it's going to lead to legalism. And if you're, a, if you're an immature believer, you don't like being told what to do. And if you're a mature believer, you don't like being told what to do either. <laughs> but then as a mature believer, you also know This is supposed to come from the heart. It's not supposed to be a rule. Yep, good for you. And yet, it has to happen. So how do you do things on a regular basis that you know you do because you're supposed to want to, and yet, whether you want to or not, they have to be done? However you figure that out, however you do that in your grown-up mind, is what we must do with giving. Because, yes, he wants us to do it from a cheerful heart, and I just wasn't feeling cheerful this morning. Oh, well. And yet, wait, this is a part of your worship. Would you, how would you feel if God said, hey, by the way, I'm not showing up today? Would you notice? So each of us is to set aside a sum of money and save it up for this purpose. This is, this is hard talking about money because... Many of us, I'll put myself there too, you know, we, we would say, you don't understand, I'm barely covering all the bases. And that's true. 
for, for many of you. At the same time, if we're honest, the minute there is something extra, we buy another base. We up the cable package, right? We get something else. The minute there's any kind of space in our finances, we do something with it. So perhaps, perhaps we ought to revisit this and think again about how God intends for us to use our money. You know, as a boomer, we were, we were kind of kind of drenched in this idea of what it means to be successful. I find it very interesting that many of my younger colleagues and those of you who are millennials, you're looking at how my generation has lived and you're not impressed at all. We trash the economy. We got all kinds of stuff and we don't seem any happier for it. Do you know that there are, there are young families who say, we have already decided this is what we need to live on. And they have a figure. It covers our rent right now. It covers our utilities. covers the, the, all of our basic needs. As soon as we have made that much, we're never going to increase that lifestyle. I save a little bit for retirement. That's smart. I save a little bit in case of an emergency. That's good. I set aside something to give to the Lord. Wait, but as soon as all of our needs are met, we're not going to increase our lifestyle at all. And every raise we get, we're going to give away. Do you know we have young families in this church who live like that? They put me to shame. It's going to take me another 10 years to get to where they are. But from day one, they've said, I don't need more stuff. As soon as I've got all the basics and fundamentals covered, everything else goes to the Lord's work. It's amazing, isn't it? You say, yeah, well, I'm not there. Okay, many of us won't be. I'm just suggesting that maybe it's something to think about. After all, we're still richer than virtually everyone else in our world today. If you watch a lot of TV, you start getting the idea that every other person's a millionaire. <laughs> They're not. Do you know we've got young families who will not get cable here? They refuse to have cable. I feel like a glutton because I have cable. They say, I would never spend $20, $22 a month on TV. And they put up little rabbit ears, and they watch what comes through on that. What would happen if we all decided what it was we could live on, and we never increased that, and we gave the rest to the Lord? Paul says that our gifts should be in keeping with our income. This is the idea of being proportional. Okay? So, now, this is not a, a tithe. Um, and and I, I always get in trouble for talking about this, and I'm sorry. But I just want to be clear that you can't find the tithe taught anywhere in the New Testament. There are some people who talk about the tithe, and they act like it's like a magic rabbit's foot. And if you just give the tithe, then like God is obligated to bless everything else, and that's how you get rich. For many of you, you're still working toward getting up to the tithe, 10% before taxes, off the top. Whew! But I want us to remember that the Old Testament tithe, first of all, it was 10%, but it was done twice a year. And every third year, they did it a third time. 
because that was their taxing system. That was their income tax. So if you, wanna, if you want to give a tithe the way the Bible talks about the tithe in the Old Testament, you'd have to set aside about 23 and one-third percent of everything. Still want a tithe? <laughs> now, everywhere in the New Testament, we see simply this. This idea that we give proportional to our income and proportional to what God, we believe God would have us to do. Now, now, Paul talked more about giving in 2 Corinthians than he did in 1, and we're going to skip forward there for just a minute. 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6, we read this. This, again, he's writing to the Corinth about, about 18 months later, and he says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your own heart to give. So notice he says, give generously. He says, give willingly. We don't do guilt trips around here, but if you ever think you're feeling one, don't, don't give because of that. Whatever you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I don't know if you've been around many African-American churches. I've got several friends who pastor African-American churches. Honestly, if any of them would take me as their pastor, I'd be there. Because <laughs> I love the way they worship, including taking the offering. Yeah. And I'll never forget, right? My friend's church. Of course, everybody's dressed to the nines. Mm, mm, mm. Now it's time. Now you all go, mm, mm, mm. Yeah, now it's time. And then the organist would go, dun, dun. Yeah, it's time. You know it's time. Woo! And everybody starts clapping. It's time. It's coming. You've been waiting all morning. It's time for the offering. And boom, boom, boom. Woo! And everybody jumps up, shouting, screaming. And you're thinking, you know, if you're white. <laughs> and then the music starts. Dancing music. They got a big pot up here, and everybody gets up, wanted, and they're all just coming up, and boom, woohoo! <laughs> you know, we, 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 you would, you, we would die there. We're like, oh, 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 my God! Oh, we're so hung up, right? I go, oh, no, secret. I, mean, I don't want anybody. I don't want anybody to know what I'm giving. You know why? And we want to act like, well, we don't want to make them feel bad. <laughs> that's not why you want to keep it a secret. <laughs> and that's not why they're giving the way they do. They're not showing off. Oh, we say, well, that's just not right, making a big show out of it. Really? It's better the way you do it? When I worship with them, I realize that, and, and, and I'm supposed to be a grown-up Christian, I'm supposed to be a pastor, and I realize I become convicted that I give like a, like a cheapo, miserly, Scrooge-like character. That's how I give. Instead, he says, give cheerfully. And then look at this promise. He says, and God is able to bless you abundantly. He doesn't say, oh, automatically he will. He just says, just remember, he is able. He's able. He's able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He goes on. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You were hoping he'd say bank account. 
Let me suggest that there is a place in life where you aren't worrying about the bank account. And it's not because you have more than enough money. It's because you have more than enough joy. Wait, you realize if we say amen, we should take a second offering. You realize that, right? <laughs> you guys do understand, right? I mean, first of all, you know I didn't pick this passage. I'm not talking about giving on purpose. It was right here. I can prove it. And yet here we are talking about two churches becoming one and the work that might need to be done for us to relocate ourselves and make an impact on that community again. Do you think this subject is going to impact how that goes? Do you really believe that God is not going to call for something special from us? <laughs> so let's listen. And then say amen. You will be enriched in every way, verse 11, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. You see, some of what they were giving, they were giving to Paul, which helped him to continue to give the gospel, and entire cities were coming to Christ. This service that you perform, your giving, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but also is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. We say it all the time, right? Put your money where your mouth is. And yet, are we surprised when that's true for the gospel as well? Now, the trick here is that many of us will feel convicted. Even now, I feel convicted as I work on this. You're convicted. But we say, you don't understand. See, I can't. I'm constrained. And I understand that. Most of us are constrained. And here's where we must, if we're going to say amen to something in this passage, we've got to realize something's going to have to change in our lifestyles. Before we can become this kind of a generous person, we have to let some things go. We're going to have to cancel some things and go without and under, under uh, downgrade even maybe our, our, all the comforts so that we can get margin with which we can be generous. If you've promised coals that money every month, then you sort of kind of have to pay Kohl's that money every month. But could I suggest that you don't promise Kohl's anything else? And the goal isn't to switch it to a Sears card or something else. The goal is to leave it open. You know what? Honest, most of us, the minute we have unencumbered un money in an account, we start trying to figure out, what should I do with that? Paul says, set it aside for worship. Well, I mean, okay, I got, I'm giving my tithe now, but should I just give more? And now, now you're going to have an experience you've never had before. God, I have this money. What do you want me to do with it? It's not the mortgage. It's not the bank's money. It's not the credit card company's money. It's not the electric card company's money. It's, it's unencumbered money. You, have you ever even had that experience? As a people, we should. It's a goal worth working toward. That's sort of what he says about the Macedonians in just a chapter before this in 2 Corinthians 8. 
He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In, just like I was just talking about those African-American churches, he's talking about a different church, different group of churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. How does that work? Do you really think that can happen without sacrifice? For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They ur urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Now, I appreciate it when you come up to me and say, hey, by the way, Mike, that was a good sermon, really touched me, really helpful. I, I appreciate that, you know, keep that up. But never once have one of you come to me and say, could we please take a second offering? <laughs> I'm just dying here. Not once. But the Macedonians begged for the chance to give. Please, please, please let us give to this. And they exceeded our expectations, verse 5. And they gave themselves first of all to the Lord. Wow, what a testimony. And then by the will of God also to us. So I urge Titus. So I urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning to also bring to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, but by the way, this is kind of, I, I think I hear sarcasm in this. Paul writing to Corinthians, he goes, hey, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, Remember, they thought they were all that in a bag of chips. He says, since you guys are so good, I'm really looking forward to you guys finishing up this gift thing that you set aside too. See to it that you excel in this grace of giving as well. Finally, he says this. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want you to test, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Wow. I wonder what would happen if we began comparing our offerings to somebody else's offerings. It sounds totally crass, doesn't it? And yet if we took the offering and then we divided it by the number of people that are here, and then we went down the street to a couple other churches and took their offering, divided by the number of people they have, it would be fair. How do you think we would stack up? Hmm. If, if we are a little below their average, would that prompt you? Some of you are competitive. You'd say, yeah. And then other of you are saying, well, that's just not right. <laughs> so how many of us would say, it's not about competitive. I just want to give the most. We can do this. Let's raise this. Now, I do want to kind of compliment you, though. Uh, I don't know where we are in the offering, although that's an interesting exercise. But I can tell you that when it comes to doing what this offering was for, giving benevolent help, that you do excel. Just in the last few months, just in the last few months, we've helped f at least five families, four of which are a part of Crossroads in some way, and one of which was completely outside of the church. The outside connection, by the way, contacted us because they had heard from somebody else, this is a really generous church. We've, you, we together have given just under $4,000 away just in the last two months. 
I can tell you that there are churches that are double or triple our size that don't give that all year. That's something that is important to us, and we're proud of it. And it's okay to be proud of stuff like that. That's what Paul's saying here. Well, let's get back then to 1 Corinthians 16 and finish this up. So he says, this is what I want you to do. On the first day of the week, you set aside the money, and you bring it in as a part of your worship. You put it all together. Now he says, so that when I come, no collections have to be taken. See, he doesn't want to do 13 verses of just as I am. He doesn't want to leverage and, and twist arms and make people... He doesn't want to go through all of that. He doesn't want long appeals. He just simply wants people to say, okay, guess what? Now it's time. You've been praying. You asked God to show you what to do. Now come do it. And we plop it there. Now, I did see this happen once at a church where we attended. They had a big building campaign. Big building campaign. It's about $7 million worth. And I remember that they announced that they were going to do a capital campaign, raising the money, and, of course, everybody goes, oh, oh, goody, oh, goody, right? And I remember they said, we're only going to do it for seven weeks. Really? Hmm. So they explained how they're going to do it. For the first four weeks, they had a number of people, their leaders. They had a little video that kind of talked about what was going to be done. They needed to basically double the size of the church because people were sitting on each other's laps. By the way, before they could finish that building, Attendance had grown again, and they had to add to the building they were still building, but that's another story. So I remember they took four weeks. They trained a lot of different people who went around to anybody's home that wanted. They would show the little video, give you the paper information, answer any questions. No promises taken. Just, we'll just give you information. They did that for four weeks, and they would mention it in church for four weeks. On the fifth week, they started a collection. The first people to give their money were all of the pastoral staff the senior pastor and all the pastors. And they took all the, whatever those guys, it was, it was a pledge for three years. They were, gonna, they were pledging by God's grace to give this over the next three years. They collected that number, and I remember the pastor read it out loud. It was an amazing number. It, all of the staff, they were, had bought in. They, they, they were committed. So the next Sunday, remember, they only have two left. The next Sunday, they did the same thing. They talked about why this thing had to be expanded. But now it was all of the elders and ministry leaders. They were all asked to make their pledges, whatever they wanted to pledge. They combined all that number, and they read the combined number now. So with one more Sunday to go, so they're on their sixth Sunday, so the seventh Sunday came around. Uh, at that seventh Sunday, they announced what the total number of those other two Sundays were. In those two Sundays, from just staff and all the elders and leadership, ministry leadership leaders, they had raised almost two-thirds of everything they needed. That last Sunday was the only Sunday they said, now, if you want to get in on this, today's the day. Fill out the form. That was it. That was the end of the campaign. And guess what? They raised more than they needed. In fact, some people are like, wait a minute, you guys are almost there, and I didn't even get a chance to give yet. I tell you what, that's the way to do a building campaign. These Macedonians had to be, they were asking, begging. Paul says, don't make me beg. 
And then he says, verse 3, And then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men that you approve, and I'll send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable, I will go it as well. Basically, what he's saying there is, is that there's a, there's a need for accountability. People should not give unless they are comfortable that, that there's a high level of integrity and accountability. And what Paul's saying is we're going to make sure that we take care of this gift and it goes where it's supposed to go and it's carried by people that we trust and I'll go myself with it if that's appropriate. So there's all kinds of guidelines that we could pick up from this. Okay, and, and, and you can write these all down. That's fine. You can, if, you, if you don't write anything down, I promise you'll forget it in a little bit. It'll be okay. Biblical giving isn't optional, it's mandatory. Everyone gave. Some of you are saying, you don't understand. I don't have very much, I don't have enough to give. And yet, here's the widow who gave that little, that little coin. If you're, if you're coming to Crossroads and you're giving nothing, you already know that we love you, no matter what. Okay? And we'll love you if you just continue to give nothing. But let me say this to you as your pastor. If you're coming and you're giving nothing, figure out a way to give something. Give a dollar. Give two dollars. It's kind of funny. You talk about proportional giving. There was a family. They were driving home from church. And on the way home from church, the dad was complaining, complaining about church. It was too hot. And the preacher went too long. And the music was terrible. And, and the seat was uncomfortable. He says, it was terrible. And then the, his son leaned up from the back side. He goes, I don't know, dad. It seemed like a pretty good show for a buck. So let me encourage you, if you give nothing, decide on some small amount and start giving it no matter what. Give, give $5, but give it every time you worship. Make it a part of that. And then say, God, I would give more if you make that possible. I would give more if you make that possible. And let's just see what happens. So, giving is not optional, it's mandatory. It starts with meeting basic needs of other believers. That's important to us. Just so you know, if you're, if you're a member here and something happens in your life, we will give everything that we can to support you. There is no limit. We may not have it, but if we have it, we'll give it. It's our number one financial priority. For us as believers, you say, well, now I've got to save for retirement. Oh, but that might be number two or number three. I've got to send my kids to college. Maybe number two, number three. Guess what? God says, give first fruits to him first. And if you think I'm, I'm working you for Crossroads, then, then please just give it to somebody else. But take God at his word and give it. There's a promise connected to this. He says, it's every single believer's responsibility, even if you're only given $5. It should be proportionate. It's okay to start wherever you're at. Now, to be honest, 10% for some of us is way too low. If, if we could learn to live on what we make and, and do that, we, we could be giving 20, 30, and there's many people who, who will increase their percentage every year. Wow. There's so many exciting things going on. I know of one, a, a group of young churches um, they really feel convicted that debt is a terrible thing. So they have a debt destruction ministry. It's pretty impressive. You see, if you're in their church and you have credit card debt, consumer debt, you can go into an agreement with them. 
and they will do a budget sheet with, with you, and they will look at how much debt you have. And if they can, they will pay off your debt, all of it. You got $14,000 on a credit card. If they have it, they will pay it off. But there's this understanding that you are going to keep making payments back into the fund where that came from. Okay, so you're going to pay it back. And the savings, okay, the savings from that, that interest that you would have paid, stays in the account so that it can do this for somebody else. Makes sense, right? Just think about how much faster you could pay something off if they weren't charging you 15%. So what the church said is, we'll take care of that. Um, the, the pastor told me, and this was two years ago, he told me, the only people that we have in our church that have consumer debt are new believers. That's impressive. I would say that's putting your money where your faith is. And it should be mo not be motivated by pressure. Don't feel guilt. Don't, this is not about what a good Christian you are. It is, though, about what's important to us and who do you trust. And, of course, it's right to expect integrity and accountability. So we said give, go, and grasp. It's bad. I know you're getting worried because it's one point in and we're not done. Give to the Lord's work. Secondly, go to the Lord's people. Starting in verse 13. Or verse 5, I'm sorry. Now Paul launches into this whole, his itinerary, okay? Now he's starting to talk about where he's going next. It, it makes, maybe it doesn't make any sense. After I go through Macedonia, I'll come to you, for I'll be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while. Basically what he says here is, as I'm traveling through, I want to swing in and see you guys. And when he says, come in to see you, he doesn't want to pop in for a quick visit. He wants to stay. He wants to have quality time. He wants to spend time with them. And he says... I want to give you a chance to help me on the rest of my journey. It's not just money help. It's also just some of the materials that you need, that he needs to keep going. But you see, what he's saying here in verses 5 to 7 is that this whole process is relational, and it can be a little messy. You know, the business that we're in as a church, it's messy. The products that we make are not your normal products. We're not making widgets. We're making disciples. And making disciples takes a while. Paul had already spent 18 months with them. We find out later he probably spent another two years later with them. It takes time, and it's messy. What he says is, I'm ready to come. Think about it. It took Jesus three and a half years to work on his disciples. And I'm thinking, he was a good teacher. So we have to be patient with people, but we're always pushing them. Come on, are you moving spiritually? What does it look like? What's the next step for you? Paul says he wants to make connection with them again. And then he says something else about his itinerary. He says, but if I stay at Ephesus until Pentecost, or I'm going to stay on until Pentecost, because a great door of effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. We don't have time this morning, but if you want to write in your margins, Acts 19 Read about what was going on in Paul's ministry at this time. I told you a little bit about First Friday. How would you feel if I came to you this morning and I said, hey, those, some of you know we sent a team to represent Crossroads at First Friday, and they were so busy leading people to the Lord and, and arguing with people that disagreed with them that the borough council kicked us out of First Friday. We're not allowed to go back anymore. 
And some of you would go, that's terrible. Unless, of course, you've read Acts 19. And you say, that's awesome. That is awesome. Can you imagine if we made that much of 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 an impact that people were actually talking about it later? Why not? What Paul's idea of a good opportunity is, is there was rioting in the streets. But there were also miracles. Boy, God was just working. He says, I want to stay here as long as this is going on. And so read about 15 to 18, 19. Read about some of those miracles. Actually, one of my favorite stories is there, the seven sons of Sceva. I love this story. Some of you know the story. This kind of Jewish mysticist and magician type guy. And the apostles are casting out demons and everything. So they thought, hey, we can cast out demons by Jesus' name too. And they go to a guy that's demon-possessed. We cast you out in Jesus' name. And the the demon says, hmm, let's see, Paul I know, Jesus I know, you I don't know so much. And then he beats him up. It's a great story. They never put that part in one of those Jesus movies, though. I think that would be hilarious. So Paul's saying doors are opening and there's conflict. Are you tempted to think that when things are going well, it means there won't be a problem? Wow. I mean, we're gonna, you know, two churches become one. What could go wrong with that? <laughs> or a church relocates. I mean, what could go wrong with that? A church goes way beyond stretching and believing that God's calling them to reach a much larger area, so they take risks. What could go wrong with that? And the truth of the matter is that it's in the midst of the opposition that often God is working most. Sorry, we do have to go. So then he talks a little bit about Timothy, and now he's going to talk about people. So he's going to talk about Timothy. He's going to send Timothy there, and uh, he's a little worried for them, for him. Timothy, young guy, young minister, kind of timid, and Paul knows how Corinthians can be. He says, please be nice to him. Do not chew him up and spit him out like you have me. And he talks about how important this guy on his team is to him. He says, I'm going to send him next. Do you notice the personal connection? And then he goes on, now about my brother Apollos. Now, that's actually the last time he uses that now about, that little phrase. So apparently they had asked, hey, by the way, when's Apollos going to come back? Remember Apollos at the beginning? Some are of Apollos and some are Peter and some of Paul, remember? So this guy was a powerful preacher. They're wondering, when's he coming back? And basically, I guess Paul says, actually, I urged him to come back and see you. He says, no way, Jose. <laughs> At least not right now. And so we don't know. We, we, we don't know. It, it's, it's just not a good time? Or is he saying, uh, I had enough of them for a while. We really don't know. But Paul, and do you hear Paul talking about people? Actual team members. So we, he instructs them to give to the Lord's work, go to the Lord's people, and lastly, grasp the Lord's mission. Now he's going to wind up the letter. You ready? How would you wrap up a letter like 1 Corinthians? Verse 13. Many of the guys that were at the men's retreat, you should recognize this. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Paul uses four kind of military terms. First, be on your guard. You understand what that means. Watch, watch, be on guard, keep a lookout. If you were in a war and somebody said, we need you to keep a lookout, what direction would you look? Toward the enemy, probably, right? 
Right. So if you were in the church in Corinth and Paul says, I need you to keep a lookout, which direction would you look? Unfortunately, probably toward the church. And actually, both impressions are not necessarily wrong. Be on guard. Enemy coming like this or division coming in from here, be on guard. Be watching. Don't be surprised by this, he says. Oops. And then he goes on, he says, stand firm in the faith. Uh, your personal faith, maybe? Yes. Or the faith, the stuff that we've been teaching you. But stand firm. Don't be moved. When was the last time that something happened in your life and it kind of rattled you in your faith? I don't know. I don't know about this. I don't know. I thought God was going to be on my side. Why isn't this working? What's wrong? No, it's funny. Standing firm. The whole 15th chapter is kind of bookend with this idea of standing firm. The very beginning of 15, Paul says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. If you quit now, everything you've done is wasted. Or the very end of 15, remember? He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your work is not in vain in the Lord. All he's saying is, don't quit. Don't quit now. Be strong and courageous. Really, these two words should go together. They're really linked. And it just means when you're facing something that's scary, what do you do? You bolster yourself up and you just hang. You hold tight. General Patton said that courage is fear who has said its prayers. Say, this is really a mess, but I know one thing for sure. I am not backing down. This is what I believe. And then lastly, he says, do everything in love. Does that sound like kind of gushy next to all the other ones? Kind of soft. And if that's what you think, then you're still thinking about the definitions that the world has for love, not Jesus. Because love means doing what's best for someone else, regardless of the cost for you. When was the last time you actually sacrificed? I'm not talking about somebody sat in your row. When was the last time you actually sacrificed something that really cost you something just to help somebody else? No payback. Paul says that ought to be what motivates us every time we're together and every interaction. Then he goes on, and we, we're, we're going to run out of time here. You know what's interesting about these examples that he gives? He's talking about be this kind of person, be strong, stand firm, be alert. And then he starts talking about these guys like Stephanus. Oh, by the way, you notice that word is devoted is in red. Do you know what that word is actually, the, the real word is? It's a word, a Greek word for the term that we would call addicted. What he says is the whole household of Stephanus is addicted to serving other believers. Sometimes the key to breaking one addiction is to getting a better one. They were addicted to what? Showing off? Nope. Being famous? Nope. Serving God's people. Maybe you know somebody like this. And what's interesting is he says, well, what, I want you to notice what they do. So, so people that are living examples of what he's saying, they, there's this idea of service. And then he says, and I urge you to submit to such people. If, if I was telling you about people that are just addicted to serving, you'd expect me to say, so be like them, Right? Model yourselves after them. Be like them. That's not what Paul says. He goes, he says, submit to them. 
How do you feel about submitting to somebody in church? You know who to submit to? The people that are serving. They're kind of putting their money where the mouth is. He says, you got to submit to them. He goes on, beyond submission. And he talks about Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Stephen, Frank, and Archie. <laughs> These are guys who just came and helped Paul. They refreshed him. They gave him what he needed. They were friends. They supported him. They refreshed me. When's the last time? When's the last time you just refreshed somebody who has been a blessing to you? Then he talks about Aquila and Priscilla. We know their name. It seems like they're everywhere. They were. Do you realize that they owned a home in Corinth when Paul was there? Then they owned a home in Ephesus while he was there. And they owned a home in Rome when he was there. And every place, every single place, they opened their home and they had church in their house. So does the Lord, so does the church that meets in their house. Believe it or not, hospitality, opening your home to be a source of comfort and care. That's what people do when they're living for Christ. And finally he says, and all the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We're going to start this this morning. I want you to stand and turn to the... No. (laughs) When I used to do youth ministry, that was the joke. What's the difference between a holy kiss and an unholy kiss? It's about three and a half minutes. Uh, But now all the middle schoolers are down in access. They didn't even get to hear that. Rats. Anyway, the idea here is affection. Look at that list. Service, submission, friendship and support, hospitality, affection. And then that's the end of the letter. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Seems like he should end with 1558. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you know your work is not in vain. And Lord, seems like something like that. Instead, he ended, why in the world would he end a letter like this talking about all these different people? People that we don't even know. This is probably the most profound thing, I think, in this whole experience. Do you understand that he was writing to real people? Real people in a real place, in a real church, who had real issues, just like you and me. He's writing to them. And guess what? They weren't rock stars. They just did the right things for the right reasons at the right time by God's grace. He was writing to a group of people in this little peninsula off the Mediterranean. He mentions people that we'll never, ever know. These names mean nothing to us. And yet he's saying, you guys are at the very core of what God's doing in that city. Do you realize that he left this letter for us? People that, the people in Corinth, they never would have known our names. Mentioned my name to them, they'd say, who? And yet, you and I are the ones here, now. We are the people that can do what they did where they were. You know, if you're tempted to think that somehow your spiritual life is this ethereal kind of quality to life and that you come to church so that people can kind of add to that and improve your quality of life this kind of sense of being okay with God and being close to him if that's what you think church is about you have missed it church is about the weird people sitting next to you 
Church is about those people that you don't know for sure what their name is. There's no way you can minister to them if you don't know their name. And the stuff that you and I are going to do next, Paul says, that's what really actually matters. That's the spiritual stuff. Do you get it? Having someone over just to get to know you. And by the way, what can we pray for? Getting to know someone well enough to say, tell me, what's, is there a source of pain in your life right now? What's happening and, and how, is there a way I can help? Do you feel like you're moving forward spiritually or are you kind of stuck? I've been both. How can I help? You are the ones. You're Stephen. You're Frank. You're Archie. You're the ones. When people, we talked about this before in the, in the membership class, when we go around the room and say, well, how did you find us and why did you stay? Sometimes they find us and they check us out online. They stay because of the other people. Over and over. Do you know that what you do at Crossroads is the most important thing that we do? And that each of us moving forward and doing that a little more makes all the difference in the world. So sometimes we say, is God talking to you? I guess really what we should ask is, are you living like God's talking to you? Because he, he does have you on a mission. You say, well, you don't understand. See, I slide in, I slide out, I don't do much. Fix that. Well, I, I'm not able to do much. <laughs> let, us, let us help you with that. In fact, you should come. Wow, what, what a great segue, right? Come to the spiritual gifts class. <laughs> Let's pray. I've been so patient. Let's pray. I'm at a loss to know what should happen. Because only you know what should happen. If you're here and you've trusted Christ, if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, today's the day, now's the time. He died for your sins, put your faith in him. But most of us are believers. Who do you think the church really is? What do you think? Do you think it happens someplace else? The, the important people? Big decisions? The most important part of what we do as a church is the stuff that you do. Calling a friend when you didn't see them. Praying for them, with them. Letting them know when you're struggling versus just when you're having success. Looking for opportunities to share the gospel with somebody else. Learning to be patient even though your neck is killing you. <laughs> We're all in process. In the next few minutes as we sing, I, I want you to just ask, God, are you asking me to step up my game? I didn't realize that I was actually on your list. I'm listening. Think about that. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.